Our New Testament reading this morning comes from Acts chapter 17. We ask you once again to stand to give honor to the reading of God's word. Read from Acts chapter 17, verses 1 through 15. Hear now the word of the living God. Now when they had passed through Amphipolis and Apollyana, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a synagogue of the Jews. Then Paul, as his custom was, went into them, and for three Sabbaths reasoned with them from the Scriptures, explaining and demonstrating that the Christ had to suffer and rise again from the dead, and saying, This Jesus whom I preach to you is the Christ. And some of them were persuaded, and a great multitude of the devout Greeks and not a few of the leading women joined Paul and Silas. But the Jews, who were not persuaded, became becoming envious, took some of the evil men from the marketplace and gathered a mob and set all the city in an uproar and attacked the house of Jason and sought to bring them out to the people. But when they did not find them, they dragged Jason and some brethren to the rulers of the city, crying out, These who have turned the world upside down have come here too. Jason has harbored them, and these are all acting contrary to the decrees of Caesar, saying, There is another king, Jesus. And they troubled the crowd and the rulers of the city when they heard these things. So when they had taken security from Jason and the rest, they let them go. Then the brethren immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea. When they arrived, they went into the synagogue of the Jews. These were more fair-minded than those in Thessalonica, and that they received the word with all readiness and searched the scriptures daily to find out whether these things were so. Therefore, many of them believed, and also not a few of the Greeks, prominent women as well as men. But when the Jews from Thessalonica learned that the word of God was preached by Paul at Berea, they came there also and stirred up the crowds. Then immediately the brethren sent Paul away to go to the sea, and both Silas and Timothy remained there. So those who conducted Paul brought him to Athens, and receiving a command for Silas and Timothy to come to him with all speed, they departed. This is the word of the Lord. Please remain standing and take your hymnals and turn to hymn number 283. Let's remain standing to sing Fairest Lord Jesus, hymn 283.
This morning, you may have noticed that Pastor Robbins, our senior pastor, is not here. Um, he has actually already done preaching for the day. He would have started much earlier than you did this morning. He's at ministering in Newcastle, England, as he reported uh, this previous week. And so it's my turn to step into the pulpit. Um, some of you, I uh, don't know how excited you were, but probably you were a little happy to get out of the book of Job. And so finally, we are moving on from the book of Job, what is in, in some ways much more positive, but has its pitfalls. We're going to be looking at both epistles, First and Second Thessalonians. This is now our introduction to this series. Intention is to, to deal with with these, um, and it's a book that, it, these are books that we probably haven't looked at for maybe, at least as a congregation as a whole, for a couple of decades um, it's been since these books were considered. And these are like other Pauline letters, there are common themes that you will have heard before, you will recognize when we come to them, and they are certainly useful in that respect, and then you also find some distinctive teaching that occurs in these epistles, things that speak of the last things and the day, coming day of the Lord in a way that's not frequently spoken of in the New Testament. So we look forward to those. But today it's our intention to get to know this, this congregation to which these letters are written uh, more clearly by not looking at these epistles in particular, but by going back to the book of Acts, Acts chapter 17, what you heard in your New Testament reading. So if you would, go ahead and turn back there this morning and with the Holy Spirit's help, we will come to recognize the good things the Lord has for these people. And so let's even now pray and seek the Lord's help. Our gracious God, again, we love you and we thank you for your manifest love to us that you have caused us to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. And pray, Lord, this morning that we would recognize ourselves even as we consider the, the, the word that was proclaimed in this, uh, in this setting, in this city, early on. And we will see those things which we share in likewise with them in, in believing the gospel that was preached. Lord, for those who do not yet believe, Lord, help them in their unbelief. Overcome hard hearts, grant them grace, new hearts, that they may believe all the things that are testified concerning the Christ. And we pray these things in his name. Amen. Before we begin to look at the text, we want to give a few words in particular about the the, the city of Thessalonica, the, the modern-day city, you would find it if you would look on a map of that part of the world. It's sort of in the panhandle of Greece. And I probably your, your easiest reference point would, would be to say it's about a six-hour drive to the east of Berdicona uh, when he's home and not here. Um, it is, to this day, the second-largest metropolis in Greece, and we'll come back to that word here. Uh, it was, in Paul's day, a very significant city. In terms of the Roman Empire, it, it's, it functioned as the mother city, which is where we get the term metropolis. It, it's a translation uh, of mother city uh, of, of Macedonia uh, in the Roman Empire. And it existed in it, its, its context in Paul's day as what was known as a free city. And this, this in some senses meant that they were getting a free ride. Uh, at least in the sense of, of being part of the Roman Empire, they were not required to pay tribute to Roman cities. They, they were not treated as those other subjugated cities. And part of this goes back to earlier times during Roman civil wars. They had this, this uncanny ability to, to pick the right winner ahead of time. And they showed loyalty at certain times. And that was, that was recognized as they, they, they said, yeah, we're going to support this person because they were picking the, picking the, win, the winning team as they were, they were enduring these wars. They were rewarded on the other side. The reward was very specifically tied to their loyalty 
to the winning side, and so they received a loyalty bonus. As a result of this, is they didn't have to pay tribute, as we said before, but they were also self-governing. They were allowed to have their own council of their city that ruled their internal affairs. They had their own economy. They were able to mint their own coins and to, to tax in the way that they wanted to. And they could also promote their own educational system. So in some senses, they were, they were very self-sufficient, but all of it tied back to the fact that they had to maintain that, that loyalty to the emperor of the Roman Empire. And so it was a great blessing to be a Thessalonian, to, to enjoy that kind of freedom. freedom. But with it, it hung over them constantly, this, this lingering sense of whatever we do, don't rock the boat. Make sure that, that it's always known that Thessalonica is a city that supports the emperor. And you'll see where that becomes to be a problem for us as we come closer to our text. There were about 100,000 people living in the time, and they would have been people of all sorts of uh, of life, there would have been noble people, there would have been uh, slaves, a multitude of slaves that were there. There were Jews, there were Greeks, as, as we will come to see. And, and certainly you would recognize this as you looked at the epistles, that there were a multitude of gods. It was very much like those other cities in, in that, that near context we look at in Acts. Certainly like Athens, you, you would think of them as the city that has Mars Hill or the, Areo- the Areopagus, and all the multitude of gods that were worshipped there. And then you see how Paul addresses those just a few verses after our text, uh, picking up in Acts seventeen sixteen. The same was true in Thessalonica. They were just as full of idols as any other city. There the people worshipped the Greek gods. They had Artemis and Apollo and Aphrodite and Zeus. They recognized it in, in, in various sorts of temples. Surprisingly, they also had a multitude of Egyptian gods that they worshipped, Isis and Serapis and Anubis. And what's fascinating is, is that with the presence of all these gods who they fear and worship, there's, there's a way in which it's intertwined into the culture, that, it, that it's so much a part of who they are, their existence, that it, that it is their identity. Augustine, writing three and a half centuries later, is, is, is going to point out the fact that it's, it's such a part of their identity, but there's one thing that's lacking in that identity. Those gods had no moral requirements. We don't often think about that. We just assume if there's a relationship with God, or, or a God of any kind, there's, there are moral demands that are placed on the person who would worship and serve that God, but that was not the case. They were required to make sacrifice. They were required to, to do things that involved them in the life of the culture that were connected to those gods. They were required to recognize them. And, and it was certainly deeply entwined in who they were. But there was no Ten Commandments of the other gods. It didn't affect who they were morally. And, and, and Augustine pointed out this was one of the great weaknesses of their gods is they didn't ask for anything other than loyalty. The same way that was asked of the king. When we look at them, we hear the, the stories of the gods that they worship. They're, they're somewhat comical. If, if you've read uh, uh, any of the Percy Jackson series, any teenagers out there that you went through that? Okay, I'm, I'm one of the few nerds um, that went there. But you get some of these inside stories in sort of a silly way. And in the context, you learn that they're utterly ridiculous, the lives of the gods. They're, they're, it's incredibly easy to mock them, but at the same time, the culture embraced them. They sort of served a purpose and brought them together. And they brought them together in particular ways is that the, the worship of the gods was tied to the government. It was a civic cult, one which you could not opt out of very easily. 
They had festivals and they had games and, and they had a, all of these were going to be government sponsored and, and they expected a certain amount of engagement. And you, in a sense, you had to pick your side. And so you could think about, in our context, is, is that when, if you've moved to, to Greenville in, in, in recent years, at some point you were probably asked, so who are you with, Clemson or Carolina? And you had to pick a side and decide who you're going to be with. Now, imagine that same kind of request for loyalty multiplied ten times. And it was not an option to maybe go to a Saturday football game and tailgate and, and worship from the stands. But instead, you had to, to do it every single week with every single team. And you had to wear your colors all the time. And if you tried to opt out, you were in great danger of being ostracized from society. You were in danger of losing your livelihood. That was bad. But what was worse is that in the present form, it was also tied to what was known as the imperial cult or the worship of the emperor. And as they were wont to do in, in those days, whenever there was someone who had established himself, and this is what they believe is actually where most of the gods came from, there was actually a living, breathing human being at some point in the past who had done some great thing. And as time went on, as the decades passed, there's a separation. They still held that person in esteem and their esteem grew. And it actually came to be a practice that they would award someone with the status of divinity. You would think, I didn't know that you could do that. Well, they did. This is what they did. And so such was the case with Julius Caesar is that he had been divinized by the Romans and such uh, it was passed on. But even before that, Alexander the Great was, had been divinized by the Greeks. Uh, and so he was treated as a god. And in, in, in the present form, Caesar Augustus, had, had, Caesar Augustus had also been received into the, 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 the pantheon of gods. And so there was a particular worship of the emperor in that city that was part of the religious cultus and part of the civic life. So you can imagine in Paul's day, when he comes to the city and begins to preach how he is going to have problems when he talks about King Jesus. So let's go back to our text, and even just a little bit before our text, we have Paul coming, and the kind of gospel climate that he comes into that we learn of, he if you go back to Acts 16, you know that he responded in verse 6 to what was known as the Macedonian call. Acts 16, 6, it says, Now when they had gone through Phrygia and the re region of Galatia, they were forbidden by the Holy Spirit to preach the word in Asia. After that, they had come to Mysia. They tried to go into Bithynia, but the Spirit did not permit them. So passing by Mysia, they came to Troas, and a vision appeared to Paul in the night. A man of Macedonia stood and pleaded with him, saying, Come over to Macedonia and help us. Now after he had seen the vision, immediately we sought to go to Macedonia, concluding that the Lord had called us to preach the gospel to them. Macedonia is where you'll find Philippi and where eventually you'll find Thessalonica. And so they go there and begin a journey to it. We read that back in Acts 17, 1. Now when they had passed through Amphipolis to Apollyana, they came to Thessalonica where there was a synagogue of the Jews. So he passes through several cities. It's on a road called the Ignatian Way. It was a very easy place to pass. He comes to this mother city of Macedonia, and they come to find a synagogue that's there. There was a Jewish settlement there. There were worshipers of the true God, according to the Old Testament scriptures. And there were people who were not only Jewish, but also people who were God-fearing, who had aligned themselves and were coming there. They hadn't yet received circumcision and fully become part of it, but they were and they were fearing and they wanted the word that was preached there. And this is an amazing beginning for the Apostle Paul to have a context in where he, he can go, where there are people that are meeting together, recognizing the true God who recognized the scriptures. 
which is what he intended to bring. Paul does so coming fresh off a beating at Philippi. He had been escorted out of town by the magistrates, uh, embarrassed that they had beat him when they discovered he was a Roman citizen, but the beating had already taken place. And it says he moves on, and Calvin describing the situation and Paul's disposition as he goes to do this yet again in another town, he says, This so invincible fortitude of mind and such patient enduring the cross do sufficiently declare that Paul labored not after the manner of men, but that he was furnished with the heavenly power of the Spirit. He is able to go into the synagogue knowing that he would not need to be ashamed of the gospel of Christ for it is the power of salvation for everyone who believes, for the Jew first and also for the Greek. And so in this confidence he goes and we read in verse 2, as was his custom, he went to them and for three Sabbaths reasoned with them from the scriptures, explaining and demonstrating that Christ had to suffer and rise again from the dead and saying, this Jesus, whom you pre- this Jesus whom I preach to you is the Christ. He is engaging in that simple life-giving work of proclaiming the gospel. And Luke doesn't tell us here what the specific text was that he was preaching. It may have been Psalm 22. Christ speaks through the psalmist saying, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Or it goes on and says, The congregation of the wicked has enclosed me. They pierced my hands and feet. He could have used that text. He could use Zechariah 12.10 that will pour out on the house of David and on the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and supplication. Then they will look on me whom they have pierced. Yes, they will mourn for him as one mourns for his only son and grieve for him as one grieves for a firstborn. Or certainly he could have preached from Isaiah 53. Verse 3, he is despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and equated with grief. And we hid, as it were, our faces from him. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our our iniquities. The chastisement for our peace was upon him, and by his stripes we are healed. Could have been from those, could have been from any number of texts that he might have preached the Christ, because the Old Testament is full of the Christ to be preached But he did, he preached Christ, and he began preaching Christ first as the anointed one, the Messiah, the the, the one of the Old Testament that the prophets had proclaimed. And he said there was a Messiah. And then he went on and he preached the necessity of the suffering of Christ, that it was required that though Christ would come with power, though he would come in innocence, yet he was also called to suffer. And that suffering would be a redemptive suffering. It would be to deal with the sins of was people. And Paul preached Christ risen from the dead, according to the scriptures, a, a, a redeemer, an anointed one who would come and who would live, and then he would also die, but he would be raised again from the dead. The grave could not hold him. The Holy One would not see decay. And Paul could have said all those things about a Christ, about a Messiah coming, but he didn't stop there. His message included this one particular point that he had to get out. He wouldn't hold back. And that is that Paul preached that Jesus was the Christ. Explaining and demonstrating that the Christ had to suffer and rise again from the dead, saying, this Jesus, whom I preach to you, is the Christ. The child born in Bethlehem, the son of Mary, Joseph, the one son of Mary and Joseph, the one who was raised in Nazareth, the one who astonished his teachers even as a child, the one that John the baptizer identified as the son of God, 
the one who came with authority and wisdom, teaching in such a way that he astounded all those who came to hear him, the one who worked mighty miracles which proved him to be the Son of God, the one who knew no sin, and the one who, despite his power and authority and wisdom and grace and innocence, was betrayed and beaten and crucified by his own people. And he was buried, but the grave could not hold him, and that he rose from the dead. This is the Christ that Paul preached, Jesus, the one who had, to whom this had happened not so long ago and not so far away. It was a pointed message. It was not an essay that he gave. He didn't deliver a talk. He aimed at hearts and he called on men and women to believe the gospel of Jesus Christ. And it was intensely personal because Paul himself had been been a persecutor of this Christ. And this Christ had come to him on the Damascus Road and told him who he was persecuting. And Paul had been delivered by this Christ. He had been blind and then made to see and he was going to bear witness to the truth of who this Savior was. He was going to leave no ambiguity about they had to deal with Jesus. And so what was their response? Well, as in all the places where Paul would go and, and proclaim this message, there was a mixed multitude of responders, such that Paul testified in 2 Corinthians 2 when he wrote and said, Now thanks be to God who always leads us in triumph in Christ and through us diffuses the grace of his knowledge in every place. For we are to God the fragrance of Christ among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To the one We are the aroma of death leading to death. And to the other, the aroma of life leading to life. Who is sufficient for these things? For we are not as so many peddling the word of God, but as of sincerity, as from God, we speak in the sight of God in Christ. That double aroma that's at work, depending on what's happening in the hearts, what the Holy Spirit is doing in the hearts of those who hear, was at work in Thessalonica. And so we read in verse 4 that some of them were persuaded a great multitude of devout, the devout Greeks, and not a few of the leading women joined Paul and Silas. Even though the word came first to the Jews, it was the Gentiles who were receiving, who were believing in the promises. And the seeds were sown, they were, they were taken up, and while some of it was snatched away, in the case of the Jews, there were many among the others that it took root and it grew up and it bore fruit. And this is the beginning of the church of Christ in Thessalonica. Among those here we think first of, or we think also of those who were unbelievers. These were those who after three weeks of hearing Paul preach, after all that he had relayed to them from the scriptures, they came to a place that, that Luke says they could hear no more. They didn't just disagree they didn't just say, you know, that, that's interesting. That's an interesting thesis, Paul. We appreciate your, your take on this, but we're going we're gonna to step out of this one. It says they didn't just pass, but they, came, they became irate. They were provoked deeply. And so we read in verse 5 that the Jews who were not pers- persuaded, becoming envious, took some of the evil men from the marketplace, gathered a mob, and set all the city in an uproar and attacked the house of Jason and sought to bring them out to the people. They didn't just stop at being provoked, but instead they said, no, we have to deal with this. Why? Because they were envious. And so they went out, they found that the, the people that were milling around town, the men with nothing to do, and they said, come on, we have a job for you. Get very agitated, get very excited about this. You could probably recognize this in the present culture, how we are able, it just at the, just with a few tweets out there, a few, few broadcasts on Facebook to a group, all of a sudden you can have an angry mob chanting and screaming the things that you want, when you want, and how you want. 
The same thing at work in men's heart today is at work at the time in Thessalonica. And so they stir people up. This is not the last time that people, this is not the only time that people were stirred up like this. All you have to do is think back to the end of the gospel. In Matthew 27, it was the same case also. It says that, therefore, when they had gathered together, Pilate said to them, Whom do you want me to release to you, Barabbas or Jesus, who is called the Christ? For he knew that they had handed him over. Why? Because of envy. The same envy at work in the hearts of Thessalonica was what went before and preceded Christ and resulted in his crucifixion. John likewise testifies to the other part of this at the end of his gospel. In John 19 it says, From then on Pilate sought to release him, but the Jews cried out, saying, If you let this man go, you are not Caesar's friend. Whoever makes himself a king speaks against Caesar. Suddenly the Jews became these incredible Roman loyalists who dig in and are fighting passionately for the honor of their king. They want to allow no other kings ever to show their face in Israel but Caesar. Why? Because of envy. Pilate asked him, he said, shall I crucify your king? The chief priest, the chief representative of the people said, we have no king but Caesar. Then he delivered him to be crucified and they took Jesus and led him away. That same hatred that, that, that killed Jesus boils over in Thessalonica. These, the, the, this, the, these Jews so far from home, so far separated from those events that took place in Jerusalem. And they would cling to a pagan and godless Caesar. Why? Because they were envious of Paul and Silas. Why? Because their world was being turned upside down. Their king was being dethroned. The truth of Jesus was rocking their world and their sin was making them crazy as sin is wont to do. In this case, there's no Roman governor as Pilate, but there's a multitude of leaders and the Jews make their case differently. They stir up a mob. They get everyone in the town agitated so that the people, the rulers of the city can't not respond to this. There's an uproar in their city. There's a rebellion. They have to do something to quell this. So they focus their energies on finding Paul and Silas. They go into the house of Jason to try and drag them out. His reward for for showing hospitality to Paul and welcoming this messenger of the gospel is he gets dragged out into the street by a mob. But think about this. However unfair those charges may have been, they were certainly warranted. It was as bad as the officials might have thought. In fact, it was much worse. Jesus was going to turn everything upside down. He was going to remake their world. So we read in verses 8 and 9, they troubled the, And they troubled the crowd and the rulers of the city when they heard these things. So when they had taken security from Jason and the rest, they let them go. It sounds kind of a rather flat conclusion to this, all the, the uproar and the excitement that's being produced by this mob and dragging people out. But what happened is that, is that they couldn't find Paul and Silas. They weren't around. And that has a tendency to calm down the mob. And so they looked and they said, how will we deal with this? And we said, okay, Jason, you apparently were hosting these men. You have to answer for them. And so they required a bond of him. They said, you're going to take money from you. We're going to hold that money. If there's another peep out of you or out of Paul and Silas that you were hosting, then you're going to forfeit that money. His livelihood was was put in jeopardy. He was put in danger by the, the civic cult by, by the, the, the worship in that city that was tied so closely to the government, it made it such that it was a dangerous thing for him to house them. 
He would be ruined financially. Again, this also harkens back to what Christ told his disciples. He says, now whatever city or town you enter, inquire into is worthy and stay there till you go out. And when you go into a household, greet it. If the household is worthy, let your peace come upon it. But if it is not worthy, let your peace return to you. And whoever will not receive you nor hear your words, when you depart from that house or city, shake the dust off your feet. In Thessalonica, there's a mixed multitude. You have men like Jason who are willing to receive in the, 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 the apostolic messengers and the word that they bring. And you have others who want them gone as fast as possible. And such is the case that Paul has accomplished at least part of his purpose in preaching the word. People have heard, they've received, they've believed and been converted. And so now he's going on to another city. He can leave Jason in peace and hope the best for him and care for him, his concerns later on, but move on down the road. And as he moves on down the road, we find out things that are useful. We see as he goes to Berea that, that the noble Bereans are those who receive the word with all readiness and search the scriptures daily to find out whether these things were so. And they had a much better response, much more of the Jews believed in that city because they searched the scriptures and they believed. It's this contrasting response. But you can see the anger and the envy that follows them doesn't stay put in Thessalonica, but it pursues them where they go. And so they're antagonized there. It's time for them to leave again. And they go off to do more good, this time heading for Athens. So what do we learn from this text? What, what, what can we take away? I think there's a few points that we should take away in reading this particular scripture as we prepare to approach First and Second Thessalonians. First off, it's the reality of the receivers of these letters. It helps us to know when you, when you read an epistle that there was an actual audience with an actual life context and experience of the gospel. They all... Whichever epistles are, are sent out, they, they have gone to a people who have at some point heard the preaching of the word and believed. And again, we're reminded this was a historic city. It was populated by men and women, by Jews and Gentiles, by nobles and slaves. And there were some aspects of their life that you couldn't begin to imagine how different they are from yours. But there were so many others that, were, that are just like how and when you live. These were people trying to make a living, trying to get by. They had hopes and ambitions, they had religious convictions, they had everyday concerns, and they also had future concerns just like you. And you could appreciate that, and you could appreciate what it meant to have someone come into them and do what Paul did. And that's the second thing we take away, that there is an inconvenience to the Word of God. When you hear a gospel preaching, it disrupts your life. These outsiders came into their town. They came with this, this strange message, message that they were proclaiming based on the scriptures. But disrupting what they had understood about those scriptures. Changing the way that they could interpret those scriptures. For the most part, the Jews of that city, they were no more ready than the Jews in Jerusalem were to hear and receive Christ when he came. But there is a proclamation of peace, as we heard from the Old Testament reading, which Paul is offering, which he would likewise testify to the church in Rome when he wrote to them, Romans 10, 14. He says, how then shall they call on him whom they have not believed? And how shall they believe in him whom they have not heard? And how shall they hear without a preacher? So Paul took that burden. He went to Thessalonica and he made the proclamation. He says, and how shall they preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the gospel of peace, who bring glad tidings of good things. But Paul recognizes they have not all obeyed the gospel. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed our report? 
So then faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. In Thessalonica, the gospel of preached was proclaimed, but it resulted in a war and an opposition. All will not obey the gospel as they did not. And it creates this disruption. This disruption is going to live on. You're going to see that disruption born out of the letters. Their life does not get easier after the gospel comes. However much it gets better. Jason is the initial installment of that. Dragged from his house. Put, in, put into financial distress because of the preaching of the gospel. But others would follow. Third thing that we would see in that is that the concern for sedition was real. Sedition is, is conduct or speech that incites rebellion against the authority of the state or against the monarch, the ruler of a place. And gospel receivers were, in fact, having to adopt something that was going to disrupt who they were and how they would live and how they could relate to the civic life in the church. And so... They're going to discover what it cost them to be this kind of citizen, even though they were, in fact, the ideal citizen. Those who embrace Christ, those who are devoted to him, those who, who love him and keep his commands, what happens to them? They become people who learn to honor and submit. As Peter says, therefore, submit yourself to every ordinance of man for the Lord's sake, whether to the king of supreme or to governors, as those sent by him for the punishment of evildoers and for the praise of those who do good. They do so from the heart. Paul says in Romans 13:1, therefore you must be subject not only because of wrath, but also for conscience' sake, because you believe it's right. Devoted Christians are, are those who serve and work and do good. Titus 3:1 says, remind them to be subject to rulers and authorities, to obey, to be ready for every good work. They're even called to pray for their leaders. As Paul wrote in 1 Timothy 2, therefore I exhort, first of all, that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and giving thanks. Be made for all men, for kings and all who are in authority. That we may lead a quiet and peaceable life in all godliness and reverence. These were the best kinds of citizens to have. And they were being produced by that preaching that began when, when Paul labored on, on the, for three successive Sabbaths in the synagogue. He was producing the very best kind of citizens. But in reality, it was true they were going to be seditious in this. Is that there was the one point that they could not obey. Jesus had taught them, rendered to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, but to God the things that are God's. They could no longer worship as they had in times past. The idols had to die for them. And so Caesar would not get his worship, not in any cult that was existent for them. He was, he was going to be cut out and cut off. He would be honored, respected, but he could not receive worship. And because of that, their lives were going to be difficult. The message they were learning would be lessons that they would continue to learn and Paul's going to minister to them. As he ministers to them, they're going to receive the truth and we find out that they, the, the things that he did, the work that, that, that he had accomplished among them produced fruit. And this we see when we turn to 1 Thessalonians. 1 Thessalonians 1, the opening chapter, he says, you are beloved brethren by your election of God. And he says, for our gospel did not come to you in word only, but also in power and the Holy Spirit and much assurance. He goes on in verse 6, he says, and you became followers of us and of the Lord, having received the word in much affliction with joy in the Holy Spirit, that you became examples to all in Macedonia and Achaia who believe. And he would say this, for they themselves declare concerning us what manner of entry we had to you, how you turned to God 
from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his son from heaven whom he raised from the dead, even Jesus who delivers us from the wrath to come. Faith and discipleship would have its cost. It would become a burden to them. They took on obligations just from visits from this, this strange outsider for three weeks in a row. Their whole life going forward was going to be changed. And Paul still loves them and Paul still cares for them such that when we come to these letters, we'll find him writing and expressing his deep love and his abiding concern for them. That they would continue to show faithfulness and they would recognize the faithfulness Paul had when he was with them in that short period of time. And that they would be glad for their ability to identify with Christ. Knowing that their identity with Christ is going to cause them a great deal of suffering. Paul knows about it. He cares deeply, and that's manifest in his letters. He also can, he cares deeply about their concern for last things, was the world seems to be coming down on them, and it would appear that the end of all things is at hand. He writes to them to speak to them about the future that awaits. But even as they look forward to that, he calls for them as well in these letters to recognize the obligation of living in an ungodly world. There are things that you simply have to do in this world because of who you love. Let me give you five very brief points of application if you weren't sure yet. The first thing as we respond to this word as a congregation ourselves that we would recognize is Paul's obedience to the word. He hears the Macedonian call and he is moved by it and he immediately and joyfully goes and he obeys doing what he is called to do as was his custom into the synagogue to preach the Christ, Jesus the Christ. That's a gracious direction for you. Matthew Henry would say, As Paul will follow Christ, so all his will follow him, or rather follow Christ with him. They're getting things in readiness for the expedition immediately, without delay. God's call must be complied with immediately, and our obedience must not be disputed, so it must not be deferred. Do it today, lest thy heart be hardened. If we cannot be so quick as we would be in our performances, yet we may be in our endeavors, and this shall be accepted. What Matthew Henry is saying, he says, look at Paul. Look how quickly he responds. Maybe you can't accomplish that thing that you're called to do, but get to work as fast as you can. Children, that begins at home with your parents to listen to them when they ask you to do something right away, all the way, with respect, immediately, completely, joyfully. This is your training, your practice for godliness when you are called by God to obey, to begin to move in the right direction. Second thing we take away is that is that how of the word came to them. Paul obediently went to preach, and part of the how was that they were gathered together to hear the word. These were God-fearing people, Jews and Gentiles, meeting together because they wanted to hear the word read and explained and applied. The very thing that we do on the ordinary Lord's Day, in the Lord's house, with the Lord's people. We are here because God makes use of his word. We come to hear the word and pray for the spirit to make use of the word that we would be able to believe that which we hear. Third thing we recognize from this is the gospel hospitality of Jason. Part of another vehicle that was part of their proclamation of the gospel was there was a man who heard the word and responded joyfully by opening up his home. By saying, come stay with me. He wanted to be near to the word. He wanted the word to be promoted. And he said, I will, I will serve you in this endeavor. Those strangers that came to the city, he embraced. These are the kind of people to imitate who, who love Jesus and his appearing and want the proclamation of the word. It's part of even as we think about sending out, Mark quote, 
As he returns back to Taiwan, part of our prayers for him is, he, is that as he returns, he goes back as more of a stranger returning to a strange land. It's his native place. He knows the language well, but he is a different person than when he came here. He's learned things. He's taking back a message that some are going to find very hostile. Very hostile. And it's your job to pray for hospitality for him, that there would be those who would welcome, who would gather together to hear the word that receive him when he comes and preaches the word. The final point, obviously, to us is that we must be people of the word. We'll come to this passage in 1 Thessalonians 2, where Paul writes, For this reason we also thank God without ceasing, because when you received the word of God which you heard from us, you welcomed it not as the word of men, but as it is in truth the word of God, which also effectively works in you who believe. Life is given by the word. It's what the Spirit makes use of. It's how we receive our comfort, how we gain our wisdom. But most importantly, it's how salvation is delivered. By hearing and believing on the Lord Jesus Christ. That which Paul proclaimed and which continues to be proclaimed in this pulpit. Week by week. Year by year. Brethren, do not forsake the assembling yourselves together in the house of the Lord to hear the word. It is life for you. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for your truth. We thank you for your people. And we thank you for the faithfulness that you work in them. To make them proclaimers of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you, Lord, for how you have sent faithfully your spirit to us. You have remembered us for good because you have loved us even before time. And you've elected us to this hope that we would have in Christ to believe your promises. And we pray today that as we continue to meet together, that those among us who do not know your truth might be humbled, might be broken, might be brought to a full repentance to acknowledge their need for Jesus Christ. And Lord, in their need, may they find him faithfully and fruitfully proclaimed. We pray that.